We have already dedicated plenty of time to the absurd abundance of elements named after the Swedish mining village of Itterby, and it can be difficult to keep them straight. Not only because of their maddeningly similar names, but as lanthanides, they exhibit similar behaviors. They get used in very similar ways, on the rare occasion that they get used at all. And you could be forgiven for thinking you've already heard the story of how Element 68 was discovered. By performing repetitive, monotonous, endless laboratory work, Carl Gustav Mosander found a new chemical element within a sample of the mineral gadolinite. Even contemporary scientists were confused by the resemblance among this handful of elements. Due to a mix-up in the lab, what Mosander had dubbed erbium became known as terbium, and what Mosander had called terbium became known as erbium. After 30 years of chaos, the elements had their names officially swapped, to align with what everyone was already calling them anyway. But there is something interesting and unique to say about every element on the periodic table, and today's subject is no exception. In fact, in a very real way, today's episode, and everything else you find online, makes its way to you, thanks to Erbium. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we're doing a deep dive on Erbium. Have you heard of the Trans-Pacific Express? This 17,000-kilometer-long route makes stops at Shanghai, China, Qingdao, China, Maruyama, Japan, Koje, South Korea, New Taipei City, Taiwan, and Nidana Beach, Oregon. It ferries its cargo along the ocean floor far faster than any truck, boat, or airplane. And you have probably used it thousands of times. That's because the Trans-Pacific Express is one of over 200 submarine fiber-optic cables that knit together the global internet. Running hundreds of thousands of total kilometers, these cables transmit over 99% of all international data, sending rapid pulses of light from cosmopolitan cities to remote island facilities at speeds of 200,000 kilometers per second. Even as we festoon the skies with communications satellites, wireless networks simply can't compete with hardwired connections in terms of raw bandwidth. And transoceanic cables are as tried as they are true. The first one was laid more than 150 years ago, and it was a monumental accomplishment. Following the invention of the telegraph, linking the continents by wire was a natural idea. Samuel Morse first suggested doing so in 1840, and by the 1850s, an entrepreneur named Cyrus West Field was ready to put money behind it. 
Terrestrial connections were commonplace by that point, and submarine connections between Great Britain with Ireland, Belgium, and the Netherlands proved the concept could work. But conducting such an experiment on a global scale would run into unique problems. For instance, how to ensure the signal could actually make it from one side of the ocean to the other? There were two schools of thought on the matter. Morse and British physicist Michael Faraday believed that the cable should be made as narrow as possible, while William Thompson, the future Lord Kelvin, recommended the widest copper wire possible. The former approach was considerably cheaper than the latter, so it won out. The project began in earnest on August 5, 1857, when the USS Niagara and HMS Agamemnon set out from Queenstown, Ireland. And less than five miles out, the cable snapped. The ships returned to port and started over. They next ran into trouble in the middle of a stormy night on August 11th, when, again, the cable broke and was lost. Field and his team went back to the drawing board. On June 25th of the next year, the team tried a new approach. The USS Niagara and HMS Agamemnon met in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, each carrying half the total length of cable. They spliced the ends together and sailed off, the Agamemnon toward Ireland, and the Niagara toward Newfoundland. Two days later, both ships noticed that the cable had failed, but they couldn't figure out why. Each assumed that the other had caused the problem. Unable to figure out what had happened, they abandoned the 100 kilometers of cable they had just laid and began yet again. When the cable snapped once more on June 29th, Field's investors were starting to express some doubt that the endeavor would ever succeed. So it must have seemed like a not-so-minor miracle when, finally, on August 10th, 1858, engineers were able to relay the first test messages back and forth between Valentia Island, Ireland, and Heart's Content, Newfoundland. Terrestrial cables carried the connection all the way from London to New York City and beyond, and on August 16th, Queen Victoria and President James Buchanan exchanged the world's first intercontinental telegraph messages. Both messages were quite verbose, taking as long as 16 hours to transmit, but shared a sentiment of goodwill between nations. Modern archaeologist Cassie Newlands says the occasion was, quote, the Victorian equivalent of the Apollo mission, and it must have truly seemed like this cable had folded time and space. And there was much rejoicing. New York City held a parade and set off fireworks with such abandon that the dome of City Hall caught fire. Tiffany and company bought up the remaining length of cable, splitting it into 10 centimeter pieces that they sold for 50 cents apiece. The craze did not last long, however, because only a few weeks later, the cable failed. 
This may have happened because one of the chief engineers would sometimes overload the cable with electrical power in order to allow the faint signal to travel all the way across the ocean. Or at least, that's who received most of the blame at the time. Private investors were uninterested in funding a new cable at this point, and that might have been the end of the line, so to speak. But the British government saw value beyond potential profits and funded the project's continuation. Finally, in 1866, Europe and the Americas were linked by a much more durable cable, and instant communication has continuously joined the two continents ever since. Nowadays, data is transmitted as pulses of light down fiber optic cables rather than electricity across copper wire. But the laws of physics are still a problem. How to get the signal to travel such long distances? The answer is erbium. Around every 50 kilometers, the signal hits a special length of cable containing erbium ions that get pumped full of energy exciting the electrons around that erbium. When the light, traveling down the fiber optic cable, hits the erbium, its electrons fall back down to a lower energy state, and emit light. The exact same pattern of light as the original signal, but strengthened enough to travel 50 more kilometers, until it gets amplified again. It turns out, these erbium outposts dotting the seascape tend to attract a lot of attention. You might have caught that these amplifiers require power. Quite a lot of it, actually. And since there aren't power plants located every 50 kilometers along the sea floor, these submarine cables carry the necessary electricity as well as their data. This infrastructure hasn't been laid in a desolate wasteland, though. Rather, we've plowed right through some well-established neighborhoods, and it's honestly kind of upsetting to some of the residents. Namely, sharks. Sharks possess a sensory organ that can detect electromagnetic fields in the water. It helps them pinpoint the location of prey based on the faint amount of electricity generated by their twitching muscles. Introducing a cable carrying 10,000 volts to their environment can be confusing, to say the least, and it's not unheard of for these cables to suffer damage caused by curious sharks. For that reason, it's become standard practice to wrap submarine cables in a sheath of Kevlar to protect all those precious ones and zeros. And they are precious. Following an earthquake in 2006, damage to four major cables disrupted the flow of data to half a dozen countries in Asia, and phone circuits as far away as Europe were overloaded. Similar circumstances have led to continent-wide data blackouts in Africa and Asia, and this damage often takes weeks or months to repair. It's worth noting that sharks are practically never responsible for these outages. Usually something like a ship's anchor or fishing lines are to blame. But clearly these are critical lines of communications, and they sometimes find themselves the target of more nefarious activity. 
the United States became the first belligerent to pursue that kind of activity, even before the 19th century came to a close. In 1898, during the Spanish-American War, the U.S. comprehensively attacked Spanish cables, severing all communications to Puerto Rico, Cuba, and the Philippines. That kind of thing doesn't happen so often these days, though, because what's more valuable than destruction is interception. The National Security Agency pioneered the art of undersea wiretapping in 1972 with Operation Ivy Bells. Targeting a Soviet cable, the NSA deployed highly specialized equipment, some of which had been previously used in Project Azorian, which we learned about in episode 25, Manganese. They covertly installed a recording device, and since it was 1972, Every month thereafter, a diver would retrieve the tape, revealing intelligence on everything from operational tactics to Soviet commanders' love affairs. The US government found this information to be especially valuable. According to one of the divers, quote, We didn't know how much we were frightening the Soviets until we listened to these tapes. Very quickly, we pulled back from the brink, I think finding this information turned out to be the thing that let the Cold War end. Operation Ivy Bells was terminated in 1980, when a former NSA employee in dire financial straits revealed its existence to the Soviet Union in exchange for $35,000. Since Ivy Bells came to an end, underwater wiretapping has only become more sophisticated and far more comprehensive. Surveillance agencies aren't just monitoring the communications of foreign governments. They're listening in on civilian traffic, too. Including, and especially, that of their own citizens. In a prior age, such a claim might have sounded like the stuff of far-fetched conspiracy theories. But not only is such an idea entirely plausible in 2020, it's effectively public knowledge. Explicit details of mass surveillance became widely known in 2013, when former CIA employee Edward Snowden revealed information about several such wide-reaching programs to the public. Although, at least as far back as 2005, the Associated Press published reports on a then-new nuclear submarine with the ability to tap fiber-optic cables. The information provided by Snowden was revelatory not so much because it exposed the existence of mass surveillance, but the extensive scope of that surveillance. It is essentially complete. The NSA and its partner agencies are able to target practically anyone in the world, and monitor everything they do via telephone and internet. As The Guardian reported, quote, This includes recordings of phone calls, the contents of email messages, entries on Facebook, and the history of any internet user's access to websites. Interestingly, the NSA does not deny that they have these capabilities. They merely claim that they're used as part of the agency's 
Lawful Foreign Signals Intelligence Collection System. Intelligence agencies conduct this surveillance, in part, by capturing all data traveling across those fiber-optic cables that connect the world. Sometimes this surveillance is conducted with the knowledge of local authorities, and other times it's done more surreptitiously, by tapping those lines. Like a much grander version of Operation Ivy Bells. When fiber-optic cables are tapped, it's usually done at one of the points where the signal is amplified using erbium-doped fiber. At these regeneration stations, individual wires within the cable are already separated out to boost the signal inside. This makes it trivial for the interested party to access and tamper, often simply by bending the wire enough that a small amount of light leaks out, ready to be siphoned away by the listening device while leaving little evidence of any interference. From there, the surveillance device scoops up hundreds of petabytes worth of information each day, storing it for as long as possible so that government agents can sift through it at a later date. So to anyone associated with the NSA and its allied organizations in the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, thank you for downloading my podcast. There are few locations less accessible than the bottom of the ocean. But that's not the only place you can find erbium-doped fiber amplifiers. They're used wherever fiber-optic cable is used to connect distant locations. Unfortunately, they're still pretty specialized equipment, so they tend to run a couple thousand dollars apiece. The optical properties that make erbium so useful in fiber-optics also make it useful as a component of certain lasers, and even as a colorant for glass. Of course, this is far from unique among the lanthanides. Many of them wind up in lasers, and the pink color erbium lens to glass makes it pretty similar to neodymium. So when adding erbium to your collection of elements, you'll want to first collect plenty of intelligence that indicates you're working with a reputable source. Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements. Music is by Kai Engel. To read the full exchange of messages between the United States and United Kingdom on August 16th, 1858, visit episodictable.com er. Thank you as well for enduring the brief hiatus in between the last episode and this one. We should now be back on our regular schedule. So check back in two weeks to hear the legend of Thulium. Until then, this is T.R. Appleton reminding you to communicate via services that employ end-to-end -end encryption whenever possible. <laughs>